Our message today is from Acts chapter 2. Jesus is Lord and Christ. Jesus is Lord and Christ. We'll read the whole chapter, and we'll read the whole chapter because there, we're going to pick up the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost, where he explains not only the speaking in tongues or other languages, but he also explains the death and resurrection of Christ in this passage. But we'll focus on the middle part of the passage for our message. However, it's important to understand the context. So we'll read the whole chapter in terms of what precedes and then what the consequences were or the good results afterward. So Acts chapter 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because they were each one hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and marveled, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They are full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you, and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit upon all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God, 
with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God has sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all, as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord was adding to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our Lord and thank you for his death and resurrection. Teach us now from this portion of Scripture what you have for us to understand, to learn, and to grow in our true knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want to believe and have stronger faith, and we want to be stable, secure, and unmovable in our faith. And may it rest on Christ, Christ as our Lord, Christ as our Savior, and then only in Him. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. On this day of Pentecost, this day of Pentecost occurred about 50 days after the Passover, about 50 days after the crucifixion of Christ. This is a, a time that Christ was telling and preaching to the people that this day would come in which the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon the disciples in a miraculous way, in a unique and miraculous way. That's what is at the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 21, Peter explains what had happened to him and also with the other disciples, 120 disciples who are praying and waiting for this day of Pentecost. 120 of the disciples or the believers, the Holy Spirit fell upon them or came upon them miraculously, and they were able to speak in languages, foreign languages that they had never learned instantly. Instantly, they were able to speak in those foreign languages to those in Jerusalem who were there to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And those in Jerusalem were from the various regions of the world. Well, some of them were perplexed, and they were likely the curious ones who listened to Peter. And at the end of the chapter, they were the ones who repented of their sins, were convicted of their sins, and believed in the gospel, were baptized, and then began to fellowship in the local church in Jerusalem. That was those that one group. But the other group is in verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. But others were mocking and saying... They are full of sweet wine. They're mocking and saying, no, that's... But Peter's answer was, you can't say that. It's only the third hour of the day, meaning about 9 a.m. It's only about 9 a.m. And how can you say that they are drunk? That's not the time typically when people get drunk. At least in mass, you don't have drinking parties usually at that time. You have them at night, not the third hour or 9 a.m. And then he explains that Joel the prophet which prophet likely lived 800 years before this event, he predicted that there would be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on this day. And Peter says, this is what Joel the prophet predicted, and you know that. That's what happened. That's what he explains in verses 14 to 21. But after refuting the critics, which is typical, what the the apostles and disciples do in Scripture They initially refute the objections of the critics, and then they preach the gospel. They refute the arguments of the critics, and then they preach the truth of the gospel on how to be saved. So that's where we pick it up. In verses 22 to 36, we pick up where Peter explains the gospel. And in explaining the gospel, he explains what happened and what the meaning is on the death and the resurrection of Christ and even also the ascension of Christ, which is towards the end of his sermon. So let's pick up in the middle of his sermon on the day of Pentecost at verse 22 
because he has just refuted their argument and now he's preaching the gospel. So 22, chapter 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. Men of Israel, all of these people, most of these people, the vast majority of them were Jews or Israelites. They were the ones in Jerusalem visiting from various parts of the world because they were supposed to come to celebrate the day of Pentecost. This festival they were supposed to come to celebrate. So he addresses all of them because of their heritage, their lineage, and their religious background. He's addressing them in that way. He's addressing people who should know. He's addressing people who have been taught the Bible or who have access to the Bible, who have read and have had explanations of the Bible presented to them over the years. He's addressing them and calling on them to listen to what he's saying. Listen carefully to what he's saying. He calls Jesus, Jesus the Nazarene. We have seen before that the name Jesus means the Lord is salvation. And Nazarene, he's called that because Nazareth was the place where he was brought up. And Peter and others identify Jesus as that, Jesus the Nazarene, which tells us and shows that he is talking about Jesus as a real person from a real place, Nazareth. And they all would have known about that. In terms of evidence, in terms of evidence, look carefully at how he is presenting his case based on evidence. He tells his audience, remember, this audience would have had tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Jews assembling in Jerusalem. And that's why 3,000 out of that great multitude, they believed. Not everyone believed, but 3,000 out of hundreds of thousands, probably, and that's the case, because God's Holy Spirit had come upon them. But in terms of witnesses and eyewitness evidence and testimony, notice the careful language he uses. In verse 22, he says, Just as you yourselves know. You, then he says in 23, You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men. Then he says in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. We are all witnesses. Not only did, are you all witnesses of his death, but we, the 120, and according to 1 Corinthians 15, at another time, there were five, more than 500 at one time that saw the resurrected Christ. He's saying, this resurrected Christ, we are all witnesses. So if you doubt, you know you, that he died, but if you doubt that he rose from the dead, there's 120 of us right over, around, over here and you cannot refute all of us, right? And two or three witnesses in a court of law establishes a case. But in this case, we have 120 who can tell you all what exactly happened. We saw him rise from the dead. We are all witnesses of this. And then finally in verse 36, Jesus, this Jesus whom you crucified, so they know about these events. They know their complicity in these events. The point being made here is if the resurrection of Christ did not occur, then immediately at this point, 
there could have been and would have been a refutation of Peter's message. But there wasn't. In fact, there was silence and then there was faith. Faith in verse 31, some believed, 3,000 of them, and they were established in the church. So there was no refutation at the time of the resurrection. There was no refutation at all. But then you might say, well, Peter didn't write this, and all the 120 witnesses didn't write this. Well, Luke wrote this, and he may have been among the 120 or the 500. We don't know. But Luke wrote this, and Luke is telling us that we should believe in what he says. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. We see that Luke, he acknowledges that others have compiled accounts, written accounts, and they were eyewitnesses of the things they saw, the things they heard. He himself is taking up the same task. He says in verse 3, It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order. Luke says, I'm taking up the same task that they took up, and that's what I'm writing about right here. Why? Verse 4, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. We have Luke composing this work, telling his reader that I am writing everything after a thorough investigation so that you might know the exact truth. You were taught it verbally, but now I'm writing it to you so that you can go back and study it and have a confirmation of your faith. That's why he wrote that book of Luke. Notice too in verse 3, he says, Most excellent Theophilus. Most excellent. We don't know who Theophilus was, but he likely was an official, perhaps a Roman official, perhaps a Jew in the Roman government, but he was likely an official in the Roman government because he's called most excellent Theophilus. If we notice other places in the book of Acts, such as Acts 23, 26, 24, 3, and 26, 25, this phrase, most excellent, is used in reference to the Roman officials addressed in those chapters. And that's why it's likely that, that Theophilus was an official in the government. It would be akin to the way we address our own uh, officials or politicians. When we are publicly doing so, we will address them as honorable so-and-so or most honorable so-and-so. And that's similar to what is being done here. Which means that Luke could have been refuted. Theophilus, being an official, he would have reason to refute and reason to reject. But we have no evidence in history that that ever occurred. Luke, therefore, is putting himself forward as a reliable historian, 
as to the events he describes. Well, Luke not only wrote the book of Luke, but turned to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. He not only wrote the book of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 1. Acts 1, 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. Now what does Luke say? Luke acknowledges that he composed the first account to Theophilus. Now, the book of Acts is a second account or a second book that he wrote for the purpose of helping Theophilus be encouraged and fortified in his faith. And he said, in the first account, it was all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, meaning his ascension. But then after his ascension, what happened? That's what he's describing in this book, in the book of Acts. And between his resurrection and his ascension, it was 40 days, as he says in verse 3. And during that time, he presented himself alive by many convincing proofs. Many convincing proofs. We know he did it first to the women at the tomb, and then to Peter and John, and then to the 11 disciples, and then he did it with 100 and, or 500 disciples, he did it with 120 disciples, he did it with different groups and different individuals over a period of 40 days. He presented himself alive. This is what Luke is presenting to us. And so if Luke is presenting to this, uh, this to us in meticulous detail from beginning to end, of what he understands, what he knows, then we have another source of evidence and confidence we should have that what he's writing is reliable. We weren't there, but Luke was there. And there are theologians and historians who have traced the things that Luke has written, especially in the book of Acts, regarding cities, regarding individuals, regarding politicians, regarding the ways of journeying from place to place, and the things that happen in certain places at this time in the first century. And they have, by their own study, corroborated that Luke was a very careful historian, a very accurate historian of the people, the places, and the events of his time. And Peter is making that known to his audience. And we should also make it known to our audience that what the Bible says is truthful, it's reliable, and they should believe it. They cannot refute it. Now, verse 22, back to verse 22. What was it? What was it that was attested to them? It was attested to them by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. In their midst, they know Many of them were there when Jesus did this by the miraculous power of God. By the miraculous power of God, Jesus did good to the people. He wasn't doing bizarre miracles. 
He wasn't doing things like that. He was doing good to the people. His miracles conformed to his sound teaching. He had sound teaching, godly sound teaching, and his teaching matched his miracles. His teaching wasn't one way and his miracles another way. There was no contradiction between the two. Contrary to the way charlatans are over the years, charlatans or fakers over the years either have their doctrine wrong, their teaching wrong, or their miracles wrong, or both. And it's usually both. Both usually is the case that they get both wrong. They are healing people in very dubious ways, claiming to heal people in very dubious ways, And their teaching, what they're saying about the Christian life, the Christian doctrine, the way we should be as Christians, that also doesn't square with the Bible. And in that way, both are usually in the wrong. But they can't say that about Jesus Christ. They cannot say that about Jesus Christ. They cannot say that about the apostles. They were eyewitnesses and they lived a godly life in accordance with what they preached. Verse 23. Verse 23, this man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It was by the hands they did and godless men did. They conspired together to put Jesus to death. He is clearly in the middle of his message and even at the end of his message, he is putting the blame on them on his audience. He's exposing, he's bringing to the surface their sins. If you don't bring to the surface people's sins, how will they know that they need to repent? How do they know they need to rectify it? How do they know that they need to get right with God? They won't know. But Peter, he's bringing it to the surface and he's holding them guilty. They are culpable for the things that they did to conspire with wicked people, godless people, to put Jesus Christ on the cross. The Jews were guilty of it. The Jewish authorities were guilty of it. The Jewish mobs that they rallied together to riot and to do so, they were guilty of it. And the Romans were guilty of it. The Roman soldiers, Pontius Pilate, Herod, Roman officials, they were also guilty of it. They both, both groups, in other words, unbelieving Romans and unbelieving Jews conspired together to put Jesus on the cross. But this was no accident. This was no accident. This was not plan B. Things were not out of control. God was not on a journey. God was not twiddling his thumbs. There's nothing like that. The powerful God works through evil men to accomplish something better in the end. The powerful God The Almighty God uses evil men, their evil deeds, to bring about a good result. He has this amazing, miraculous way of doing so. And why do I say the powerful God? Verse 23 says, it's the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. When it says predetermined, it means before the foundation of the world. God determined that this is what would happen. And he made sure that this is what would happen. He predicted it from Genesis to Malachi. He predicted it during the ministry of John the Baptist. He predicted it 
over and over again that this is exactly what would happen because it was according to his plan. There is no plan A and plan B and C. Nothing like that with God. It's just one plan, and the plan is to have Jesus to die on the cross. It says in Isaiah 53:10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him. That is, the Father was pleased to crush Christ, if, to put him to grief, to put him on the cross. God was pleased in doing so. But it's not as though Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was unwilling or reluctant in doing so. In fact, he says in John chapter 10, John chapter 10, verse 18, John 10, 18. We'll actually read 17 and 18. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus was not helpless. Jesus was not out of control either. Jesus says that he lays down his life on his own initiative and he also takes it up on his own initiative. Why? Because he is the Son of God. He also has a divine nature. He possesses deity. He has almighty power. And he willingly, as a man, lays down his life so that as God, he can raise up his own human body from the grave, Jesus says. It was not out of control, at the control of Jesus' hand. He did not do it reluctantly. It, this was all by the predetermined plan of God. In the book of Acts, in the book of Acts chapter 4, book of Acts chapter 4, the disciples, after the day of Pentecost, they reiterate this point and by quoting Psalm 2, Acts chapter 4, verse 23, 4, 23, and when they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The disciples acknowledge, and they acknowledge primarily by quoting Psalm 2, that God had already prophesied through David, the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David, that the Gentiles, meaning the Romans, and the kings of the earth, meaning the Romans, the rulers, meaning his own rulers, that is Jewish rulers, would work together, conspire together against God, the Father, and His Son, Christ. They would do so. 
And they worked together to put him to death. Then they named the people, verse 27, Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. Yes, those people were guilty and they were culprits. But this happened in verse 28. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. The hand of God is a reference, a figurative reference to his power and his purpose, his will. Whatever God predestined to occur, that's what they did. But it was not out of control. It was with a purpose, as they say. It was with a plan. Returning to uh, Acts 2, 2, 23. Peter also uses in verse 23 this word foreknowledge. Foreknowledge of God. Foreknowledge of God. When he uses the word foreknowledge, he clearly means that God had knowledge of this beforehand. Just as predetermined means beforehand. The same thing with foreknowledge. Foreknowledge means Knowledge beforehand. God had this knowledge beforehand, before the world was created. But then the question comes up. Did God have bare foreknowledge? Was it just bare foreknowledge? Meaning, did God merely, only, just know what was going to happen? As though he has no interaction with what he knows is going to happen. Is that the case? Or is it that he knows what, he, what is going to happen because he is going to determine that that's the way it's going to happen? Is God just knowledgeable of the future or is he knowledgeable of the future that he controls? That's the question. Well, based on verse 23, based on Acts 4.28, it has to be, It's not bare knowledge of the future, but it's the future knowledge that he controls. He predetermines. He predetermines what human events will happen. Not only human events, but all events. He predetermines what's going to happen. Both good deeds and evil deeds. He predetermines all of it. He causes all of these things to happen. To see examples of this, Let's go to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 10, this will be our first example. Isaiah chapter 10. At this time, the northern tribes, the northern tribes of Israel have been in rebellion and Isaiah the prophet preaches against their sin and he warns them that a foreign kingdom, Assyria in the northern part of Mesopotamia, that they would come and come and destroy these northern tribes. Isaiah is predicting this, and it actually did happen in his lifetime. So these evil foreigners are going to come and come to destroy Israel. We pick it up in chapter 10, verse 5. Now Isaiah preaches against Assyria. He says, Woe to Assyria! the rod of my anger and the staff in whose hands is my indignation. I send it against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury to capture booty and to seize plunder and to trample them down like mud 
in the streets. Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. This is a mixture. This passage is a mixture. First in verse 5, he says, Woe to Assyria. He's pronouncing a curse or a woe against Assyria. This foreign nation, idolatrous, immoral, foreign nation. He pronounces a judgment against it. And in verse 5, he also says that they are the rod of my anger, the staff in whose hands is my indignation. At the same time, God is using Assyria because he is angry. He is angry. He is is indignant. And he's going to use them like a rod or a staff to inflict punishment on another. Well, who is the other? Verse 6. I send it, meaning I send Assyria. God sends Assyria against a godless nation and commission it against the people of my fury. Who is that? That's Israel. Israel is called a a godless nation, people of my fury. And what will Assyria do? Assyria will capture booty, seize plunder, trample them down like mud in the streets. They are going to be ruthless and despicable people who are going to exploit the people of Israel and punish Israel for their sins. They are an instrument of God, the rod of God to do so. But verse 7, Yet it does not so intend, nor does it plan so in its heart, but rather it is its purpose to destroy and to cut off many nations. God's saying, I'm using Assyria as my weapon to punt one evil nation, Assyria, to punish another evil nation. I'm using Assyria like that, but Assyria doesn't intend to be my instrument. They are not consciously aware. They are not saying, we exist to be an instrument of God, the true and living God. They're not saying that. They don't even know that. They, many of them don't even know about the true and living God. Right? Assyria itself doesn't intend to be an instrument of God. That's what God's saying. They just want to do evil. But when they do evil, they're actually an instrument of God to do that evil against other evildoers. Do you see what's happening there? So we'll we'll just stay stay with that example and return to Acts chapter 2. Therefore, in Acts chapter 2, when the Romans and the Jews are putting Jesus to death, God is orchestrating that. The Jews are not saying, we're going to do the will of God, and we're going to delight in doing the will of God, and we're going to put Jesus on the cross. The Romans, Pontius Pilate and Herod, were not saying, we're going to do the will of the true and living God of heaven, the God of the Bible. We're going to do His will, and we're going to put Jesus on the cross. No. They, the Romans, the Jews, Judas Iscariot, whoever, they have evil intentions. They want to do whatever they want to do, but God is using it. God is using it because God is stronger 
and more powerful and wiser than the evil will and the evil intentions of men. God is. That's the point Peter is making by this foreknowledge of God and predetermined plan of God. God is orchestrating it. He's appointing for these events to happen. But who is to blame? The people. Those who actually do the evil deeds are guilty of their evil deeds. Just as those who do the good deeds are rewarded for doing their good deeds. Verse 24. Verse 24. To show that this is not out of the the control of God, he says in verse 24, And God raised him up again, putting an agony to the Uh, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Verse 24 reiterates and emphasizes the immense power of God. God raised him up from the dead. No human can do that for another human. Only God Almighty can raise a dead person up. Only God can raise a corpse out of the grave and give life to that that dead body. Only God can do so. He put an end to the agony of death. This agony of death is the agony that not only do we experience in terms of physical pain, but our souls are tormented when we think about death. When we have our sane moments and quiet moments and we're thinking about the life to come, we think about death as the passage and we think about the agony that death will bring upon us. But God has a way for his people and for his Christ to reverse those circumstances. And what he did for Christ, he will do for us. That's why Jesus is called in Colossians 1.18, the firstborn from the dead. He's the firstborn from the dead because we will be the next crop or the secondborn from the dead. He's the firstborn and then all of us at one time will rise from the dead. He will put an end to the agony of death even for us. But Jesus is the model. He is the example. And then verse 24, another point of how it cannot escape God's power. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. It's impossible for the true and living God, the God who created the whole universe, who created all the stars, who created this whole earth, who keeps it going, who creates all of us, and who creates us in a very miraculous way, a supernatural way that he creates us and sustains us, that even the greatest of scientists have not discovered and figured out how all of this is possible. This God is the one who has the power, and because he has that power, could that God ever have been tricked? Could that God ever have been Uh, deceived by Satan and his forces? Could it be possible after God created this perfect world in Genesis 1 and 2, and then we quickly read in chapter 3 that sin and death came into the world, could it be possible that that God lost control so quickly of his world? Could it be possible that that God did not know what he was doing? Could it be that he was just experimenting here on this planet? And the answer is no. The God that Peter believes in, he says, it was impossible for him, for Christ, 
to be held in its power. When death quickly came into the world, Genesis chapter 3, it does not mean that God did not know what he was doing. About the future, he did not know. It does not mean that. And it does not mean he had no plan or he had no greater purpose. He did have a greater purpose. And then also, even in reference to the death of Christ, it's not as though the death of Christ means that though the Jews believed, though they were hoping that Christ would come and everything would be peace and prosperity for them, throughout the whole earth and that they would be having an eternal kingdom when Christ comes over all the earth and they would be the victors and they would be the saviors. They would be the deliverers. They would be the kings and the princes ruling over all the earth. This is what the Jews' hope was. The problem was they didn't think about the death of Christ and the purpose of the death of Christ with the greater purpose that God has. That's what he's implying when he says, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. You are distraught and you're wondering whether you should believe in Christ because you never anticipated that he was going to die on the cross. You never anticipated it. So immediately because he was arrested and he was uh, tortured and he was put on the cross, you thought that there's no way he, he could be the Christ, the Son of God. He could be in no way the Savior. That's what you thought. But you misunderstood. You misunderstood that it was impossible for Christ to be held in its power. Then he proves his point now. Verses 25 to 28. He proves why it was impossible for it to be that way. And he does so by quoting Psalm 16. He quotes some verses, the last few verses of Psalm 16. That's the psalm that we sang. Psalm 16. He quotes from that psalm, written by David, but has reference to Christ. Composed or written by David, but it is the words of Christ, the words of Christ, the Son of God, to the Father. That's the way to understand Psalm 16. David, being a prophet, wrote the words of Christ to the Father. So what does this say? And how does he prove his point that we should not be surprised or bewildered to know that Christ would first die and then rise from the dead? Verse 25, for David says of him, David says of him. So David is saying it, but he's saying it of Christ, that this is what Christ is saying or, or expressing or praying to the Father. Verse 25, I was always beholding the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. I, Christ, always beholding the Lord, the Father, in my presence. That is, he had the Father fixed before him. And when he has the Father fixed right in front of him, his gaze is on the Father, then he's not distracted. He knows his purpose. He knows his goal. His goal is to please the Father. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to Him because He has the Father's will, the Father's purpose in view, always in front of Him, in His presence. And He says, He's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Being at the right hand, the right hand 
normally, for most people, the right hand is the power of strength, not the left hand, the right hand for most people. So it becomes a symbol in the Bible of strength and power. And he's saying that the Father is at my right hand, He is my power, so because He is my power, He is my strength, I'm not going to be shaken. I I have confidence in the person and I have confidence in His power. The person of the Father and the power of the Father. I have this set before me, so nothing is going to alarm me, nothing is going to disturb me, nothing is going to shake me. I'm not going to shudder and mutter and complain because God is with me. Christ says that. So this is just like John 10, 18. No one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative. I lay it down on my own initiative, and I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I receive from my Father. He understands he is commissioned to do the will of the Father. That's the same as what this verse is teaching. I know what I'm here to do. Further, verse 26. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue Exalted, moreover, my flesh also will abide in hope. He further says that his heart, his tongue, and his whole body rejoices and hopes in the life to come and in the world to come, in the resurrection to come, in all the goodness of God to come. He believes it, he speaks it, his whole being understands it, so he's not shaken. He keeps his faith or his trust in the Father and it causes him to be glad, to exult, and to hope. To be glad, to rejoice, and to hope. This is what he does. Why? Not because he's fixated on problems. Not because he's fixated on people. No, because he is fixated, he is determined, resolved to keep only God the Father before him and God's ultimate will for him before him. And his ultimate will is that there will be a resurrection from the dead. His ultimate will is that there will be an ascension into heaven. His ultimate will is that between his first and second comings, he will be interceding in heaven on our behalf. His ultimate will is that there will be a second coming, a day of judgment. He will gather all of his people, all of his elect, and we will all rise from the dead to a resurrection of life. And we will judge the wicked world. Then we will reign forever and ever and worship forever and ever and be with Christ forever and ever. These are the things that Christ had in front of him, set before him, and they encouraged him. And he is a model for us. He is a model for us. Because I live, you shall live also. Jesus said, because I live, you shall live also. John 14, 19. Jesus also said, John 11, John 11, 25. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said this to Martha. So because he has risen from the dead... It is bound up, it is tied up to our own life and resurrection from the dead. Because of the immortal life he has, he endows us with it, and we will have this forever and ever. Not misery, not extinction, not reincarnation, but resurrection with Christ forever and ever. Verse 27, he further confesses 
what he believes. Christ is speaking. Because you, you father, will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The Father is not going to abandon Christ to Hades, that is, the afterlife in the world to come. He's not going to abandon the soul of Christ as it is separated from His body, nor is He, the Father, going to allow the Father's Holy One, and Jesus refers to Himself. Jesus is the Holy One, and He's saying, nor, Father, are you going to allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The human body, once it's dead, develops a stench, the beginning of decay, on the fourth day. The stench of decay commences on the fourth day. And so, and, and how do we know that? For example... In John chapter 11, remember when Lazarus died? When Lazarus died, he had been dead for four days, and Jesus had not gone there quickly to prevent his death, and Jesus did not go on the first day, the second day, or the third day. He had been dead four days. And notice in John 11, when Jesus wants them to remove the stone of Lazarus' tomb by the fourth day, verse 39, it says, Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. By this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. When the stench occurs, that's when the decay sets in. When the decay sets in, the stench occurs. Starting on the fourth day, the maggots come, the disintegration of the body in the grave. Okay, that's what happens. But here Jesus is saying in Acts 2.27, He's saying, you will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. My body is not going to last until the fourth day in the grave which means it's going to rise on the third day. If it's not on the fourth day, that means he's going to rise on the third day. This is an, one of the Old Testament predictions that Jesus was, would rise from the dead on the third day. One of the Old Testament predictions of such. Another one, remember Jonah? How long was he in the belly of the fish? How long was Jonah in the belly of the fish? It says three days, three days and three nights. And Jesus said that relates to his own resurrection. So Jonah, in the time of Jonah, he became a picture, a sign to the Ninevites and to all of us that just as that happened to Jonah, it would also happen to Christ. For example, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. Jesus says this very thing. Luke eleven twenty nine, And as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, 
so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. And in what way? Jonah, he preached, he preached the gospel to the Ninevites, but before he did, he was in the fish three days and three nights. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, which is also quoted in, in Matthew 12, verse 40. Matthew 12, 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jonah is another example of the fact that the prophets were predicting that Christ would be in the grave for three days and rise on the third day. Further, not only did Jesus know that he would rise from the dead, Acts chapter 2, verse 28, Acts 2, 28, you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Christ teaches here and confesses here that the Father has already told him and explained to him what all there is in the future after all of the works that he accomplishes on the earth. And there's going to be life and there's going to be full of gladness in his heart with the presence of God forever and ever. That's what he's going to enjoy. And not only is he going to enjoy, but all of us will also enjoy. Jesus says in John 17, 15, John, John, sorry, John chapter 17, John chapter 17 and verse 5, 17, 5. Now glorify me together with yourself, Father, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. He says, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. The glory that preceded the creation of the world is the glory that Christ will have after the world is renewed and renovated, destroyed, and then the new heavens and the new earth. He's going to have this glory, but not only him. John 17, John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am, in order that they may behold my glory, which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. He includes all of us now. Christ is going to return to glory. He is, in a sense, right now, but ultimately and fully in the days to come. And when we are with him, we're going to enjoy this glory with him forever and ever. This is what Jesus is saying here in Acts 2.28 from the psalm, Psalm 16. He is saying the same thing. I know what is in store ahead. And because I know what is in store in the future, forever and ever, in the presence of God forever and ever, whatever I experience now is worth it. And it's temporary. Let's continue in verse 29. Verse 29. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. What's he doing here in verse 29? He is saying to the people, the Jews, listen, I know among you 
And this, this has even continued over the centuries, even today, that Psalm 16, Jewish unbelievers say that Psalm 16 is David referring exclusively to himself. David is referring exclusively to himself. He's not talking about Christ dying and rising again, but he's talking about himself his own circumstances, his own life, and his own situation. That's what they say. And Peter knows that. And though he's not saying it explicitly here, he, he knows it and it's implied that he knows it. That's why he's mentioning, listen, David's not talking about himself because he died, he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Right? You can't say that. You can go and visit the tomb of David. You can go do that right now. So you know that that interpretation some people have among the Jews that David referred to himself cannot be true. Just use your mind. It cannot be true. His tomb is right here. Go look at it. You have visited it. You know about all of these ancient sites. You know about it. So go visit it. It's not David. What is David doing then? Verse 30. And so, because he was a prophet, David was a prophet, he says, and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Peter says, David was a prophet. He assumes, which they cannot refute, for example, Second uh, Samuel 23, uh, 1, 1 to, and, and following, David says, The Spirit of God spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. David says about himself, The Spirit of God spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. David is aware that he is a prophet, and the Holy Spirit is giving him words to say and write. He knows that, and they can't refute that. That's why he says, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants upon his throne. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and several other places throughout the Old Testament. God had promised that the one descendant of David would be Christ and known as the son of David, the ultimate son of David, that that descendant of David, he is the one prophesied. He is the one I'm referring to. Remember in 2 Samuel 7, when God tells David, listen, I'm going to give you an eternal dynasty, David is overwhelmed with gratitude. After God tells David, you're not going to build a temple, but I'm going to give you an eternal dynasty, he is overwhelmed with gratitude in his prayer to God. He's not overwhelmed like that because God's promising, well, for a few centuries, your descendants will be on the throne. No, he's overwhelmed because God promised him that eternally his descendant would be on the throne, the eternal throne, that is Christ, the son of David. That's what Peter means in verse 30. And therefore, if that's the case, 31 He looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ. He's interpreting Psalm 16 for us, that 
Christ was not abandoned to Hades. His soul did not remain in Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. Which is true. That's why he was raised on the third day. Verse 32. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. You all know, we all know, that God raised him up from the dead. You cannot deny it. And then finally, verses 33 and following. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has both poured forth this which you both see and hear. Since he has ascended into heaven to the right hand of God, since he received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, and since he has sent forth the Holy Spirit miraculously on this day of Pentecost to all of us, 120, he sent all of this to us. That's what you are hearing and seeing. That's what you are experiencing. It was because God ordained that the sequence of events would occur for this purpose. Then, since in verse 33, he mentions the exaltation, exalted to the right hand of God, the question would naturally arise, okay, you're saying he ascended, and I know you're saying the 11 disciples saw him physically with their own eyes ascend into heaven. But the Jews might object and say, no, that was never predicted in the Old Testament. How can you say Christ ascended when it was never predicted in the Old Testament? Peter anticipates that objection in verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Seeing that they might object, because they do, and there are Jewish unbelieving interpretations of Psalm 110, which is what he quotes here, the Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, the Jews who don't want to say that David prophesied of Christ, they say David is talking about himself or talking about his son Solomon or somebody else. They say he's referring to himself so that he's not referring to Christ, the unbelievers say. But Peter, indisputably, he says, David did not ascend into heaven. His body is right here. His grave is right here. It's with us to this day. He did not. So who is it? The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is, the Father says to the Son, and the Son, David calls him, my Lord. And the one he calls my Lord is the one who is told to sit at my right hand. The Father tells the Son, sit at my right hand until, which means a while, I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Meaning what? After Jesus ascends to heaven, to the right hand of the Father, There's going to be a period of time, and after that period of time, Jesus will make all his enemies a footstool for his feet. This one verse is teaching the ascension into heaven, 
this intermediate period known as the session of Christ between his first coming and second coming. And then upon his second coming, he's going to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. He's going to destroy his enemies, humiliate them. In other words, he's going to humiliate, Christ is going to humiliate his enemies by putting his feet on them as a footstool. That's what he's going to do. Now, Jesus actually interpreted like this. Let's turn to one more passage. One more passage, and this will be in Mark chapter 12. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12. Jesus will cite this same passage in Mark 12, 35. Mark 12, 35. And Jesus answering began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. And so in what sense is he his son? And the great crowd enjoyed listening to him. Why did the great crowd enjoy listening to him? In Matthew, it says that the Jews would not answer and they did not dare to ask him another question. Why did the great crowds enjoy listening to Christ? And why did the Jewish teachers not dare to ask him another question because he humiliated them in front of everybody. And the crowd liked to watch this debate going on. And what is it that Jesus said and did? The scribes correctly say that Christ is the son of David. But I've got a further question to you. You, you admit that he's got a human nature because he's the son of David. But why is it that David said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand, why did David say that? David himself calls his own son Lord, right? If David does so, why won't you admit that I, the Christ, am Lord? I possess deity. Why won't you admit that? So they didn't, the teachers didn't want to answer that because they were humiliated. They would have to say, yes, you are Lord. They didn't want to admit that. And the crowds knew that. They were silent, so they enjoyed this interaction. Jesus is teaching the same thing, that that psalm, Psalm 110, David referred to, him, uh, to his own son as Lord. The Lord the Father said to my Lord the Son, the Son of God and my own physical descendant, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay, then back to Acts 2 and verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Here again, he returns to the guilt of the people, but the overwhelming purpose of God to reverse evil actions of humans and turn it into something good. And what does God do? God is letting everybody know for certain that he has made Christ Lord and Christ. Now, that's an odd phrase. How is it that the Father made him Lord and Christ? Wasn't he already Lord and Christ? If he was already Lord and Christ, how did he make him Lord and Christ at this point? 
And the answer is that this is a, an idiom in Hebrew, which now this is Greek, but because of the Hebrew influence into the Greek language and Peter's expression here, to make him Lord in Christ means to manifest him or to display him as such, to prove and to dis- prove and, and display publicly with many witnesses the obvious truth of the matter. It doesn't mean that only at this point, after his ascension, he became the, for the first time the Lord and the Christ. That's not what the idiom means. The idiom means he was displayed or manifested to be this Lord in Christ with irrefutable evidence by the miracles, by the Holy Spirit, by the Word of God, by the prophets. It's all collected, all coming together at that point. That's what Jesus means. And if you want to do further study on this, there are several quotes from Jewish commentators as they anticipate the coming of Christ, they refer to it as God making him Lord and making him Christ. And Peter uses that expression in that way. By make him, he means manifest him or display him irrefutably, publicly, that that's who he is. And we see, and we saw from reading, they were wondering. We understand now the gospel and we want to believe. And he taught them how to believe. May it be that we all believe. May it be that our loved ones believe in the same gospel. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.